Hello and welcome to another edition of Very British Futures, the podcast about UK television science fiction. Although today's subject has quite a bit of Germanic input too. Before we go on, I feel I should admit that this recording had a few technical hitches, so I apologise if you hear the odd digital flutter in our voices. We're travelling back to the 70s today, where thanks to 2001 and Star Trek, science fiction in popular culture seemed to be maturing and catching up with its literature. But elsewhere, it seemed to be still locked in 60s pulp nonsense. When I told friends we were going to be covering Star Maidens, it raised a few eyebrows. It's a series with a poor reputation, especially amongst people who've never seen it. Can we get beyond that title and its premise to find anything more worthwhile? I'm very glad to welcome back two friends to help me find out, Dr. Rebecca Ray and Kevin Hiley. Rebecca is a mental health mentor and a lecturer in psychology, whose research interests include gender and feminism. Kevin is a video editor and graphic designer who's worked on all kinds of productions over the years, from TV shopping to historical documentaries and beyond. How are you both today? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, I'm not so bad. Star Maidens was a 13-part British-German co-production which was broadcast in some ITV regions in 1976. The concept was initially proposed by Count Joost Graf von Hardenberg and his wife and was developed by Eric Pace for Portman Productions. Pace's previous major science fiction series was the Pathfinders from Space trilogy, which we covered in our very first episode. He'd also had a busy career since then, writing for everything from The Avengers to Dixon of Doc Green. Five episodes were written by the prolific Ian Stewart Black, another veteran of the ITC factory, two by John Lucarotti, and two by Otto Strang. At a time when the British film industry was in the doldrums, Commercial television was attracting a lot of names behind the scenes and Star Maiden benefits from five episodes directed by Freddie Francis. How would you sum up the plot of Star Maidens, Rebecca? Okay, well, the planet Medusa has been roaming through space for generations after being knocked out of its orbit of Proxima Centauri by a comet and it's travelling around the galaxy. By the 1970s, Medusa has reached our solar system and Medusa is a matriarchal society where women rule and hold all the positions of power, while men are given menial positions such as domestic duties, childcare and uh, mechanics. When domestic Adam and mechanic Shem hear about Earth being ruled by men, they steal a space yacht and escape to Earth. They are pursued by Adam's mistress, Fulvia, and head of security, Octavia. Somewhere along the way, Octavia takes two British scientists Dr. Liz Becker and Dr. Rudy Schmidt hostage back to Medusa. From this point on, the series starts to shift focus between the two locations and two sets of characters. So half the show is set on Earth following them trying to get Adam and Shem back to Medusa and Fulvia stays there and then the other half is following Liz Becker and Rudy Schmidt having to integrate into Medusan society and rebelling. The theme about a planet ruled by women is uh, it's something that's 
occurs fairly regularly in TV science fiction. Most long-running series seem to have done the planet ruled by women at some time or, or another. Star Trek, Blake 7 and Space 1999. Uh, and Doctor Who, interestingly, nearly came to do it twice. And both times uh, the stories were nixed. Well, probably we dodged a bullet there. They yeah. would have been... Yeah. Mission to Magnus was, well, I've heard the big finish, and oh dear. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know if you've heard uh, Prison in Space, but uh, I think that's another one we'd find pretty hard going. And in fact, well, they found it hard going back then. That's why they didn't make it. Mm. Interestingly, gender politics is something that uh, has featured in science fiction really from the beginning. Uh, amongst some of the more interesting books, we've got um, the the disappearance by Philip Wiley, uh, also author of When Worlds Collide. Uh, in that, uh, men and women are separated and put onto two parallel Earths, and the book follows what happens to the two civilizations. Venus Plus X by Theodore Sturgeon and the Power by Naomi Alderman, which is being turned into a television series. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if you've uh, heard of any of those. Uh, no, I mean, it does come up in a few. I find it tends to come up as a theme in like anthology based shows, like it, the Sliders did two episodes on the theme of yes. female dominant societies. One because it was more along these lines, and the other one was more because. Uh, something like a virus or something that wiped out most of the men. That was just yeah, the uh, slightest plot. I mean, women are in charge not because of some shifting mm. in 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 the social dynamics, simply because it's nearly all women that are left alive. Yeah, mm. and, and the the other one was where, where the women got fed up with the men going to war and overthrew them. And when I've seen it in other shows, it's been like used for comedy value, like Futurama. Oh yeah, Futurama. <laughs> Um, one particular well sci-fi sketch I remember is the worm that turned on the two Ronnies, which was supposed to be set in the future where women have taken over. Oh, I've heard of that. <laughs> I don't know if that was made in response to something like Star Maidens. <laughs> it's interesting. I I did think about uh, the worm that turned, whereas the two Ronnies, it's very much a comedy idea. Oh, Although yeah. you, you could argue it's a reaction. Each episode started with saying that somehow this began when Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister. Mm. Like, so it was in some ways possibly a, a reaction to that. One of the problems I found watching this series, I should say I think all, all three of us have only recently watched this series for the first time, uh, no, I, I certainly didn't catch this on its uh, first showing. I don't think I don't think it was shown in the Granada area. I certainly didn't see it until oof, it's about getting on for ten years ago. I think I first caught it, and I think it was because someone put it on YouTube, mm-hmm. and I was curious. And I saw episode one about five years ago because a friend mentioned it, but they only knew about it because of an SFX article, and they thought it'd be funny. But I decided to give, give it a rewatch. And I'm glad I stuck with it beyond the first episode. Definitely. The first episode, it's not a great advert for the whole series, really. Mm. Uh, it's definitely worth... It's a series, I feel, that 
whether it's a touch of Stockholm syndrome by the time you get into the last few episodes, <laughs> but um, it some of the last few are becoming, if not good, then at least sort of competent, reasonably well well constructed. Mm. I found uh, with the shirt uh, after a while, I started preferring the episode set on Medusa because it started getting a bit away from I guess the main story arc and just seeming a bit more episodic with random events each week on Medusa like uh, sentient robots and murders and uh, environmental catastrophes on the planet's surface and stuff like that just random plots each week and that just seemed more interesting well I think the problem you've got there is on Medusa you've got plenty of scope for a good sci-fi idea to, to creep in uh, back on, on Earth, it just gravitate towards being a sitcom mm. and just sort of crazy mm. antics with, with the main characters. And it, it, it does feel really rather schizophrenic at times. Yes. And I think mm. the problem you've got with Star Maidens in, in, with this, this, this basing the whole premise around this idea of um, a planet dominated by uh, powerful men meeting a planet dominated by powerful women is, is is you're in risk of having a one-trick pony in terms of what to do with with the story and i think star mains is actually at its best when it puts that aside to some degree and actually tells a sci-fi tale you know gives us an adventure for the week uh, mm. because actually the stuff where they're sort of discussing the differences in their societies are, are often where it's at its most cringy actually yeah it's most interesting when they're having to deal with a problem like the the surface of medusa collapsing and stuff and then octavia gradually begrudgingly starting to see some starting to see really differently and well that's it i mean because because when you're when you're dealing with a story like that or the one where like there's just this long buried sentient ai and things like that you could have put that in something like space 1999 and you know you wouldn't blink that kind of plot. Yeah. Um, yeah, strangely, that is when Star Maidens is working best. The whole fish out of water comedy, which unfortunately just isn't very funny. And this, in fact, the whole series has got a problem of watching it, of knowing what it wants to be, which uh, reading that SFX article that you mentioned, Rebecca, I was reading, yeah. was apparently a reflection of what was going on behind the scenes, that um, the British company came into it and bought it, seeing it as basically a comedy science fiction series, whereas the German partners saw it as a much more conventional Space 1999-style sci-fi series yeah and the two halves as well the earth stuff and the medusa stuff also filmed separately uh, gareth thomas brunk mentions it in his interview on the dvd saying in order to save on time they ha had it all the locations to filmed at the exact same time as all the stuff going on on medusa so he didn't meet half the cast as a result so it does come, mm. i think it does come across in how disjointed it is and yes uh it does come out with some really odd uh, humour that doesn't really work or is quite cringy, like uh, Shem's comment at one point saying, you have to be careful with uh, female weapons because they're temperamental. <laughs> mm. And that was just really painful. And it just didn't fit. Having a programme centred around sort of uh, interstellar gender politics being made almost entirely by men. Yeah. Written by men, produced by men, directed by men, filmed by men. It 
and one wonders what Star Maidens might have been like had, say, the writers been women. Mm. It might have quite drastically sh- shifted the dynamic of the show. I think it, it might have. It might have be- become a bit more about both men and women slowly under- coming, understanding each other and coming yes. together. I mean, this is part of what I would love to know uh, with the... Uh, Jos von Hardenberg, who came up with the idea, what his intention was. Did he see this as a comedy or a satire? Or did he see it as an original sci-fi idea that hadn't been done before, which is possible? People people who don't watch a lot of science fiction do think of, think of things and think, oh, that's really original and no one's ever done it. And usually... Sci-fi fans can we can easily immediately reel off five or six examples mm. of whatever it is they've uh, thought of, and because of that, because we don't know in a way how it set off what it was going to be, it's a bit hard to judge a lot of the dialogue. Because is it trying to be funny, or do they mean things seriously? I, 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 you know, I find that question hard to answer because there are definitely scenes where they are playing it for laughs or at least if not not outright for laughs you know they're being light-hearted about it mm. but yeah there are definitely scenes i think we're supposed to take seriously and i, I think most of those do play, take place on medusa yeah i was thinking I that mean, on medusa you're seeing more of this uh, characters coming to an understanding between each other whereas on earth that never happens it always descends into running away and mm. bring, running away they bring graham crowden into it in about episode three and no oh deal <laughs> if graham <laughs> crowden comes into something you expect it to be funny that's true he's uh even though yeah. his character isn't actually particularly funny it's just a just a pompous politician he is it's just graham crowden's that style i think it's he's, he's kind of default style is to go quite sort of larger than life try and find the humor in it yes and, i get that uh, sense actually that uh, it could be that it's not just behind the scenes but also so i think some of the actors especially on the british location filming are they're looking for the humor mm. they're looking for ways to play that side of it up it's in some ways it's quite. I feel a bit sorry for the sort of German and French actors involved because in in the version that we're watching, most of them were dubbed, but so it's a bit hard to judge how good their performances are. Yeah, so, it's that's really quite um, distracting at times. The redub, it does sort of flatten out some of the characters, unfortunately. Mm. I don't think it's uh, a surprise really that out of the German actors. Uh, it's uh, Christian Kruger who plays Octavia, the security mm. chief, who probably comes out the best of the from the German side of the acting because she she can she doesn't need to be dubbed. She's her English is good enough that she can use her own voice. Yeah, and she's she's actually uh, probably the one of the most effective characters in it, actually. Yeah, most when most she's memorable. used well by yeah. the writers, anyway. Yeah, there was one episode where she went a bit weird, like she was an obsessive, uh, obsessing over Liz and who she fancied, and it was like, what what is going on? She's behaving like a stalker. We, it made up, <laughs> that, that was all the weirder simply because for the, the episode beforehand and last couple of episodes, in fact, she pretty much uh, said she didn't care about men she's not interested so why she should suddenly be fascinated by liz's preferences just mm. very peculiar 
And I think one of the big issues for me of the show was, I don't know how to describe it, but the editing is very odd. You don't really get a good, clear sense of the passage of time. Like there's an episode where it feels like Adam's here, there and everywhere. Like one minute he's in the lab, one minute he's in a hotel or or in on the ship. And you're like, is he super fast? Are they all in a field next to each other? <laughs> and as for what's going on Medusa, I mean, Kevin was saying, oh, months have passed or something. I'm like, what? Months have passed? You know, you've got no <laughs> sense of scale at all in how much time is, is passing in the show. There's no, I don't know how, what the editing trick is for that, but you don't feel any sense of time passing. You just feel like it's all happening in one day. I don't think it's so much an editing. It's more to do with the writing. Mm. And mm. since it devolves for most of the show into sort of adventure of the week, uh, I don't think they're keeping track of things like that very much. Mm. But yes, I, I, you're supposed to believe all this time has passed by and, uh, really well the time you come to the end of the series you don't feel like it's been more than a couple of weeks really. it does feel quite i agree it does feel quite quick and i think there's a general sense that nobody's there isn't a strong hand at the tiller basically no. yeah no on, on this show there's mm. no like i say there's no real consistency uh, a good example is the uh, abilities of medusan men uh, in some episodes early on, it's it's they, they have that sort of Superman thing that when they're on Earth, suddenly they can take giant leaps, and uh, but then that seems to be uh, forgotten about. And then later on in the episode uh, Hideout, Shem suddenly he's, he's zapping people with flashes of light at mm. one point, uh, which again is then dropped and never mentioned again, mm. and. And that permeates through the whole series. There's a sense that no one's really fought anything particularly through, and uh, which is a shame, really, because occasionally something happens, or things, in some ways, things happen almost ac- accidentally. You said <laughs> the, the good things that happen, and it's more, it's probably we're just reading stuff in. For example, uh, about artificial intelligence. Because uh, about midway through the series, Rudy uh, destroys one of the uh, sentry robots that uh, have been guarding the men as they slave away on the surface. Mm. And uh, Octavia accuses him of murder. She sort of says, oh, it's a robot. And he sort of says, oh, does it have feelings? And she doesn't quite answer it. But it sort of sets up this idea that maybe they do have sentient AIs in these robots and in that in the predictive computer that they use and then it seems to get confirmed a few stories later in the the one of the strongest episodes creatures of the mind when we have a whole load of abandoned computers all with their own artificial intelligences locked away in this basement and trying to um, trying to reach out in fact it had me sort of thinking that in the final episode the enemy which is just referred to as the enemy, mm. uh, was going to turn out to be a rogue AI. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was getting that sense watching that episode as well, that this was a robotic enemy and may actually turn out to be something like a spurned artificial intelligence or whatever they would have called it in the 70s. <laughs> I did feel like the show didn't wrap up at the end. It felt like it was getting interesting and that they were getting ready for another season, but... There seems to be conflict mm. on whether there was any thought on whether there was going to be a second season. 
because it doesn't because i've seen some articles saying mistakenly that rudy and liz go back to earth and they don't they, no. they, they stay on the ship with octavia and go back to medusa at the end and it shaman fulvia and adam go back to medusa as well you get the sense that they're gearing up for a fight against the the enemy and we also mm. think that maybe it was setting up a love triangle between Octavia, Liz, and Rudy, because Octavia seemed to be taking a liking to Rudy, didn't she? Mm. Yeah, it did seem to. I mean, that's the way if I was planning it, I think that's the way it would go. But to be honest, I don't think anyone was thinking that deeply about it. I think it no. seems like they were just, I think they were just kind of working from week to week. That's what Gareth Thomas said in his interview. He said he took it episode by episode and didn't think about it deeply at all. But he said there was no suggestion of a second season when they started the show. And he said he never heard of anything the entire time, but he didn't really think mm. about anything beyond the work he was doing at that time. Yeah, it's, it sounds like if there was... Um, a single person sort of directing uh, the way the plot should go, um, they weren't listened to. <laughs> but otherwise, <laughs> it, it, yeah, as you said, there's no, there isn't really a hand on the tiller. There's and there's definitely no series bible being accessed mm. by the writers. They barely seem to even know what happened before or after. You know, in terms of continuity. Well, yeah, because we were commenting on the appearance. Because in the first episode, you got Sherman, Adam, and I think some other men, and they've all got a streak of what is it, blonde or white in their hair, a stripe. And then later episodes of Medusa, none of the men have this stripe in their hair, and it's like, oh, okay, they just forgot all about that appearance thing. Then it would not surprise me, and I suppose the fact that they were making filming it in this way, with one set of stories being made in the studio and the other ones largely on location, that it might well be that there wasn't that much, in a way, communication between different parts of it, different uh, teams. Plus, they had the literal communication problems in that some of the German crew didn't speak English. And of course, not many English crew uh, speak, spoke German. Well, there were French Casper's <laughs> as well. Yeah. Just... It doesn't mm. sound like it helps yeah, cohesion on location. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it does sound like a lot of rogue operators almost. just They're just getting it done week by week mm. rather mm. than... <laughs> stopping and thinking about what sort of story they're telling. And that, mm. again, is uh, compounded by the way it was uh, distributed as well, because it wasn't shown nationally, it wasn't sold to ITV on a national basis, but shown piecemeal, shown at diff aired at different times of the year in different places, like Wales got it last, apparently. Ah. Again, people probably weren't quite sure, or was it... Uh... You know, was it a kids' show? Was it was it uh, aimed more at an older adult audience? It's a it's a bit hard to define in some ways. I think um, there's also the problem of who is it aimed at anyway. In that, um, especially in the seventies, not only is this all being written by men, you know, all the sci-fi, but nearly all the sci-fi authors mm -hmm. writing television are, are male. There's also the perspective of a time that. Sci-fi is only being consumed by males, adolescent ones usually. Mm. And mm. I, I'm not. Was there an attempt with this show thinking that it might appeal to women or to girls or something? Because again, that's probably one of the another one of the reasons the show kind of languished is that um, they're aiming for an audience they have in the past pretty much always shunned. 
I think they were largely aiming at a sort of traditional sci-fi audience. But like I said, it's very hard to tell on quite because some early on the episode there were bits that even made me think about Rent a Ghost at the moment. There's this business with the um the the car that they sort of drive the car driving itself and policemen sort of all taking as it goes past. Uh, that that's and and the uh, the eating and the aliens eat grass. Uh, that's that's kind of very kind of sort of kids comedy. Well, yeah, because there were times because we we noticed that because there was they broke into a, Adam and Shem break into a farmhouse to get some food and the girl comes out and goes, "I'm telling my mom," and they're like, oh, "Run!" And they happens <laughs> quite a few times. They behave like schoolboys. The amount of times they say Fulvia or stumble across her or whatever, and she goes, Adam, you came for me. And Adam's like, no, I didn't. It, it was Shem, and he runs off like a little schoolboy, and then Shem looks a bit confused and then goes, oh, and runs off after Adam. And it's like, <laughs> that happens so many times. I'm also wondering, because not only did Star Maidens have a spin uh, a novelization based on it released, it also had an annual, which seems to be aimed at children. And, yeah, most of the, in fact, most of the merchandise... That they did release did seem quite sort of child. There were some jigsaws. Oh, there, there was even a, a, a dolls. I, this is something I only just kind of discovered. Uh, I mean, they're basically just kind of generic fashion dolls, yeah, dressed in in slightly futuristic uh, clothes. But uh, so that all suggests they were aiming for perhaps more of a sort of a Jerry Anderson audience, younger audience. Mm. In some respects, the British probably had the right idea of keeping the tone light um, in that had the series taken itself seriously, it might actually have been really rather obnoxious. Mm. <laughs> in, uh, as, as frivolous as it is, it is actually kind of fun. Yeah, if it was taking itself seriously, that fun element would disappear. Yeah, I was read. It was the SFX article that I mentioned. It was saying, what was it, Ian Warren, who was an executive, said he wanted it to be tongue-in-cheek and he was tired of, he said he felt people were tired of poor face characters in serious sci-fi <laughs> uh yeah, anyway, the- i can sort of see what he means because 1976 you know star wars is still in fact it, it could well have been being made round the elstree at this time mm. sort of like and and, it, and i was thinking about this actually um that possibly on the ground in the studio you know, probably the actors didn't feel there was that much difference between what, you know, st- um, Star Maidens or Star Wars, sort of like when it came to just filming in the studio. Uh, it's it's contemporary with uh, Space 1999, isn't it? Um, mm. Well, you want Poe-faced. I'm, I'm, I'm known for not being much of a fan of Space 1999. I find it very... Uh, I find it somewhat turgid, to be completely honest, because it takes itself seriously quite often. And um, <laughs> yeah, and strangely, they do have a similar look of feel, but then they share the same production designer, don't they? Uh, more than that, the production designer, set dresser, sound editor, film editor, um, the SFX guy, they even re- uh, filmed in the same studios and reused some of the same props. Yeah, I, I recognize some of the props, actually. And it has to be said, I f- I'd prefer to watch Star Maidens than I would Space 1999. <laughs> In fact, uh, I'd have preferred another season of Star Maidens to another season of Space 1999. <laughs> That's not going to be a popular opinion with the audience. I don't know. I've not seen Space 1999. I'd, I'd like to see it. No, you don't. Oh, <laughs> oh it's, it's fair. I, 
we we might talk about Space 1999 in in in, in another show. Uh, I I've got a soft spot for it. It can be. I mean, yes, it can be terribly pompous and. It has this reputation that it's got a serious season and a silly season. And to my mind, the serious season is pretty silly as well. Yeah, it's, it's, the... just that, it's just that nobody's smiling. It is curious, though, <laughs> that they both have also similar background stories. I mean, you've got the moon being blasted out of orbit and becoming a rogue object in Space mm-hmm. 99. And you've got Medusa being blasted out of orbit and becoming a rogue object in, um, in Star Maiden. So... <laughs> I don't know. Was that just a, was rogue planets a popular idea at the time? <laughs> uh, it's it's possible. I mean, that idea of the rogue planet coming into our solar system just seemed to reoccur in science fiction. You know, uh, even leaving aside the obvious physics of the situation, but it, this idea of a planet appearing in our solar system does seem to keep uh, reoccurring. Uh, but that's the, I think the other thing that really strikes you when you start watching the show is how much it does look like Space 1999 because of uh, Keith Wilson being the production designer. So certainly on Medusa, a lot of the computer panels and the like have that very similar mm. look. If you've not seen Space 1999, there's no point. Was, they're a bit hard to describe quickly. On, on on a podcast, but um, the, actually, it's actually handmade. I think is the way I'd describe mm, it. It is actually quite a good look. I don't blame him in a way for sticking with with the design. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if the uh, filmmakers had said, "Oh, can we have a bit more of what what you did for Space 1999?" Some more designs like that. Although, unfortunately, because the series is made on 60mm film, as opposed to 35mm, there's a certain air of cheapness inevitably over the whole proceedings. So it um, it never looks as good quite as Space, as Space 1999 could because of that. And unfortunately, because it's on 60mm, it also gives it something of the look of a, a British sex comedy as well. <laughs> As I feel it, it, it you, you see, so and especially because you've got all the Medusa women in all this kind of sexy disco gear that they're wearing. It, oh, I was just going to say sorry. sparkly jewelry and stuff on the faces and, and that. Mm, they are very into their sequins mm-hmm. uh, on Medusa. But like I say, it's unfortunate, the 60mm, and also it makes the model effects look worse as well. I mean, they're not bad. They're not up to the standard. There's nothing as iconic as the uh, the Eagles that Space 1999 has. Yeah, it's... Um, I feel they, they feel more hurried, but there's, there, there is definitely some, uh, you know, some, some talent behind the scenes on the effects. It's, you know, it's, it's not done incompetently, but some of it just... Mm. just it just feels hurried. They had mm. a lot to get through in a short amount of time, mm. kind of thing. Yeah, the Medusa City looks great um, until you look at the windows. Just don't look up at yeah, the windows. Yeah, don't, don't look because I, I thought it was at first. I thought it was just like a sort of artistic pattern they had, and uh, then I looked when we saw it closer. It's like, oh, they're supposed to be tower blocks. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> yeah. Other than that, the, this it does look great. Medusa. It looks quite good as an artistic pattern. They mm. <laughs> should have just kept that. <laughs> Yeah, certainly. I felt that Medusa, you know, if that had been a planet of the week that uh, 
1999 was visiting, uh, it, it certainly would have would have passed muster, I think. That's actually the plant just on a side effect. The fact, the fact that the planet is called Medusa, rather than Athena, or Aphrodite, mm. I think already we're getting negative connotations <laughs> about this uh, this female society. Well, yeah, I mean, the gender politics in the show is very, very mixed because <coughs> employing what we call uh, the backlash discourse where um, women, which basically says women shouldn't be given power, women are dangerous with power. And you see this in some, time, some episodes, the way Octavia is represented. Uh, we see it in episodes with the feminists who are shown as dangerously incompetent when handling space-age guns. And again, there's this tendency in, with this da- uh, backlash discourse to present, you know, again, strong characters like Octavia as almost ball breakers. So you had a lot of this in the 70s and 80s where they'd have these very scary women who basically don't like men. And it's it's always this message saying, you know, feminism is bad for women and it's going to ruin you. And it comes out in other ways as well, such as particularly the last episode where the Medusan women are just, absolutely freaking out when the enemy show up and they just can't do anything they're just like no no we have to run away and it's the men who have to you know save the day so you've got all that stuff but then you've got even more complicated stuff going on in the perfect couple episode where bizarrely adam and uh, fulvia decide to move into a house together and first of all adam's like oh no uh women belong in the kitchen and Fulvia's like oh that sucks and then suddenly they decide screw it we're going to go with our old roles on Medusa and you're thinking well what's the point in that when you escaped Medusa and Adam's holding Tupperware parties with the neighbourhood women and Fulvia's going off to work and then they're not happy about that either and then Mm. it all goes to pieces anyway because the feminist the extreme feminists show up and again the Adam and Shem run off like naughty schoolboys. And you see <laughs> feminists handle handled quite badly in British sci-fi uh, at the time. In Doctor Who, for example, in The Time Monster, you've got this uh-huh. feminist character who's always like, oh, men. And Sarah Jane's <laughs> like that a bit at first in Time Warrior, but they turn her down mm. a bit on that. I think she's not so bad by Monster Paladin. It's the same problem again. Men, right? Written yeah. by men, yeah. And, Might not mm. be yet, feminism probably didn't know a damn thing about it to be honest (laughs) i mean it's as as i said earlier the show is better when it stays away from the gender politics actually Mm -hmm. when you do look into the medusan society it's it's it is perplexing i mean there's a degree of misandry on display by the medusans in you know how how they treat uh, uh their males there's a lack of corresponding misogyny from the humans that we meet. So you're not really getting the parallels. Uh, So I'm not sure what they're trying to say. Well, it's also at the first episode, you hear Adam having a moan going, Oh, what are we all left to do as men? We're we're just, we've got to look after the children. What children? There's no children ever in the show. You never never see any children. And why, and, and to say, they keep saying, Oh, the men are all domestics. Yet somehow they can, handle a you know fly a spaceship and they can work as mechanics and hack police cars and um to to point out that shem is a mechanic especially privileged amongst males Um, it says that i don't get that but so his his abilities are somewhat unusual 
Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of the men on Medusa are depicted at least as almost being treated as slaves and objects. It's, uh, it's uh, but at the same time, we're being told in all these plots that uh, you know the Medusans have this advanced society this advanced system uh, compared to Earth, and they became this advanced when women replaced the men as leaders. But the major problem is that the show portrays Medusan society as arrogant, blinkered, close-minded, and riven by political rivalry. I mean, what's supposed to be better here? Yeah. Mm. uh, Again, it just undermines any parallels they are trying to draw that might mean anything. Well, also another thing is, which we we forgot about, is... um, they're controlling the men through some kind of brainwashing. Yeah. Because they do that in the, was it the nightmare canon? They're able to manipulate the men so they break down and go, oh, please, please, I'm sorry, take me back. I won't do it again. And that's, again, that's not really a parallel to Earth because we don't have that those kind of devices here, like man finders <laughs> and other such. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, I think with the Medusa Society, I, again, this is probably me reading in stuff that in some ways they're they're a society in decline in that they've they've got all this technology but i do you get the impression that the medusan women don't really know how it works they don't have a they're more they're just using it uh and it's at the very start of the series we get that voiceover saying how there was a golden age before their planet started before the comet comes along and there and i have this feeling that all this technology was sort of created indeed could be created by women in this golden age and now it's a bit like decadent rome in in Mm. a sense we've got all now the women they're using it and they think of themselves as very technologically sophisticated but a lot of them don't actually know uh how this technology really works that would make a lot of sense um, if the series, you know, actually, actually drew from that. Mm. But yeah, yeah, there's, there is. I mean, it has to be um, a society under extreme stress simply because they've had to live underground in in these these, these city sized bunkers for uh, thousands of years. <laughs> I suppose mm. you know it's going to do something to. But yes, they do seem like they've gone into a sort of almost. I don't know, Gorman gas like stasis of nothing much ever changing. So contact with planets mm. like Earth becomes especially dangerous to them. Mm. Well, they wouldn't listen when Rudy and Liz were trying to warn them about the environmental disaster happening on the surface. Mm, they're, they're, they're very they're complacent there. Yeah. They're like, well, this computer says nothing's wrong, so, you know, everything's cool and you're wrong. Classic example is their uh, police force which is made up of uh, women in a rather impractical halter tops and hot pants uniform a, and high heel boots. It's a bizarre choice of costuming, that. That's right, yeah, and the um, coloured visors. And, yeah, it it, <laughs> it looks like they've, they've, I don't know, like they've come off an anime or something. We were talking about this um, contrast in the sexism of the two cultures in some ways i think it's some ways it's a bit of a again it's it's that that male point of view and that whereas the women on medusa are always explicitly saying oh men are so useless and women are superior and they're whereas on earth uh you know the men don't say that because 
they just assume it. They don't need to go around saying that they think women are inferior and mm-hmm. just stick to certain roles because, you know, they just know it. And uh, so there's a kind of subtle uh, sexism going on and on Earth. That's it. There's, but there's no fodder-reducing characters. There's there's very little for them to sort of witness and be, you know, uh, have, have their views transformed by. If anything, I would say it gives the sexism that, you know, is surely rife on 1970s Earth pretty much a free pass for most of the show. There's a couple of moments where you get the odd lech, but other than that, it's you know the the, the general powerlessness uh, 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 of women is just, just it's just not touched on at all. When they are dealing with like Madame Fulvia and Octavia, they are actually being fairly obsequious to them. You know, they're not <laughs> they're not just talking down to mm. them, saying, "Here, love, this is what it's gonna we're gonna do." <laughs> They are actually trying to be diplomatic with them. So, again, you don't get the sense when they're dealing with the Medusans either. Mm, so there is that un- unevenness in there. So it doesn't really work well as satire, apart from, to some extent, the episode you were talking about earlier, uh, Rebecca. Perfect, the, uh, the perfect couple. Because in that one, I've actually, what you, actually, I thought that worked quite well in that they start off trying to live like an ideal human couple with what they've learned from it seems magazines and whatnot. Yes. Yeah. And they find and they say, oh no, actually we're we're a lot happier with uh with Adam staying in in at home and Fulvia going to work. And they actually what it should be say, there's nothing essentially wrong with Adam wanting to be a house husband. Mm. It's where the problem is when he's forced into, and every other man is kind of forced into that role. Again, they, they don't, they don't take the time to, you know, to in most of the um, show to push for those parallels for you know people to join the dots. Yeah, I mean, mm. the purple, how long a period of time is that episode set over? Because you just again, you're watching it; it feels like it's all happened in one day almost, but it can't be. It must have been a. How badly undermined is it by the B plot? <laughs> well, with the feminists, yeah, yeah. that really. Because I mean, I was reading this academic paper by Sharon Sharp in 2008, and she really focuses in on that episode and says, you know, it's quite, you know, complicated and contradictory. And the, she mm. suggests the critique is blunted by the humour. And she says, on one side, it's contra, you know, it's critiquing gender roles and the patriarchy, like you said, you know, about mm. the gender roles and choice but then at the same time it can shore up reactionary attitudes towards feminism and essentializing oh. technology like with the joke about temperamental female weapons and it's a shame because it probably has on one level it has some of very some humor in that it's supposed to be hilarious that uh adam is sort of holding tea parties and, and talking he took and that he's got a recipe oh, oh it's, it's my father's recipe he says for this cake and yeah mm. there was however it probably the only joke i really thought oh that worked however because it's when they go to the pub and they're trying to fit in and fulvia starts telling this dirty joke and and adam says no 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 it's just this is the men who tell the jokes. You, you go over. You go over there with the women. So she goes over with the women and starts telling the joke again. 
<laughs> and and that quite tickled me. I think that 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 is uh, that's definitely was the joke that worked amongst amongst yeah. it all. Yeah, there's another bit with Fulvia as well because played with my expectations. It's the one where uh, what were they? Some rival politicians are from another country where they're trying to kidnap her. And I thought, thought, oh, here we go, the tr- that typical old trope of the woman being seduced by the man and waking up in shackles. You get that in things like Wonder Woman. So they kidnap her, but then they were going to drug her, but then she switches the drugs around. So that undermined that trope, which I quite liked. But then it still required Adam to save her in the end. It was very strange. Again, you're getting all this muddling and no coherent message overall, so you're never quite sure what the show is trying to tell us. Well... Fulvia is she's the most contradictory character for a lot of it I find mm. I mean mm, she, she's this aristocratic politi- politician she's no fool but obviously she dotes on Adam <laughs> even if neither of them will mm-hmm. admit it to each other they dote on each other really mm. uh, and certainly enough to chase him off to earth when he escapes but she always seems to be working towards a goal that suits her. She doesn't seem mm. to be. She doesn't seem to work in the interest of Medusa or of her. She, 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 it, she very much seems to be about her. It does mean each week she seems to have a very different agenda. Mm, that's right. Some uh, in, in one episode she's kind of oh those boys and sort of like, and in the other episode she's like they must be captured immediately. So I, yeah, I, I I don't. Yeah, I, I never did get to the bottom of her character. No, and, and mm. so many of those episodes, you usually ended with Adam and Shem running off, and you're like, mm. wait, they're running off again? I thought we'd moved on from this. <laughs> yeah, happy homemaker one week, bitchy dictator the next. <laughs> Perhaps a little bit more successful to some extent, Shem also gets a little bit of a story mm. later on in the episode Hideout. Where he's he's taken in by uh, a woman who has apparently just come off an unhappy love affair. Although there is something, and and uh, my partner Tina pointed this out, there is something slightly stalkerish about uh, the woman who uh, takes him in. Then, mm. particularly, you notice look at the, the the photos of her supposed boyfriend that she's just broken up with, and they're always of him on his own wearing a hat and coat and it's like (laughs) she's been photographing him from afar you suspect and then later on she um she puts a picture of shem on on the mantelpiece and it's been cut out from the newspaper (laughs) it's just something just a bit odd about her yeah that's odd. not a bad episode or or or, or, all told actually that one again it's like it's just not referred back to or anything like that afterwards, but then there is only a couple of episodes after. Yeah, it was. It is one of the last episodes because yeah. there's oh, quite a few dude. episodes after Nightmare Cannon where you see him fixing up the ship and going, "We're going back now, Adam. This has all gone wrong. We've been very silly. Let's go back." And then he runs off with Adam anyway, when he's like, "No, I don't love you, Fulvia. Run away." He isn't entirely there by choice anyway, because Adam kind of commandeers him along with the ship. Yeah. <laughs> to, to a degree at the beginning. So I guess he, he is yeah, he's, he's in two minds. Yeah. I think he's very easily led. Yes. He's, 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 he's one of those fairly submissive characters. He seems to be, you know, whoever's the strongest personality in the room, he, t- he seems to tend to follow their lead. Yeah. Mm. 
And uh, we've not actually mentioned yet, and perhaps worth a little mention, of uh, President Clara, played by Dawn Adams, who was quite a, a well-known film star in British films yeah. back in the 40s and 50s. And it's uh, it's actually not a bad performance. I mean, as a yeah, the characterization again is all over the place mm. about uh, how she goes. Sometimes she's very smart. Sometimes she's quite dim. Yeah. Um, but uh, at least uh, Dawn Adams is as regal as someone who's wearing a headdress made entirely of sequins can look. And they're trying to, I don't know give Liz a chance to integrate into Medusa society. Mm. In Liz, and it's interesting, I did wonder at first it was going to be that Liz was going to become seduced in some way by the Medusan life, lifestyle, especially because she's uh, treated very well, whereas uh, Rudy, of course, is immediately turned into a slave and uh, he gets no respect from anybody. Uh, whereas uh, she is, uh, she just gets a, a nicer apartment and a lot more freedom. I don't think it's like that for Liz, though. I, I feel that she's she, she's not as locked down as Rudy is, but uh, mm. I think she finds that life on Medusa for her personally is there's a lot of restrictions on her freedom. She has to put up with the paranoia of everyone around her. And she mm. really chafes against these like that strict conformist doctrine that you know the Medusan women all seem to live by. I mean, you know, she's well aware she's still a prisoner. She might, you know, she might be in fancier clothes mm. in a fancier apartment, but she, you know, she's every much as under lock and key as Rudy is. She's yeah, she gets bugged at times, doesn't she? Mm. And she that, 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 that weird machine to find out if she fancies a bloke or not. Yeah. That was weird. That was, that was one of the weirdest very, parts. Very strange sequence. I, I couldn't help. I can't help feeling that that's, if it was meant to be funny, it, it doesn't work. It's just weird and creepy, mm. that yeah. uh, sequence. That's an episode where uh, Octavia is also behaving way yeah, out she of is, cause It was like she was becoming obsessive with everything Liz was doing. And it was just very strange because she wasn't like that in other episodes. Uh, so we're talking about the sets of the show and I really like the theme shoe. It's a very catchy theme shoe. But why, why in the opening titles do they have to show the world's ugliest car every episode? That ugly 70s car. <laughs> uh, I'm glad you mentioned the theme music because, yes, I was, I, was, I was going to raise that. It's a nice bit of music. I think my only trouble is it, it it's uh it's a it's a bit generic. It could have equally been the theme of uh, a policeman show or or even a quiz show, uh, for that matter. It's it's so seventies. Yeah, it's very seventies. It does 70s. it does it is a bit of an earworm though. That is very seventies. <laughs> I'm just gonna say, uh speaking of the seventies, the show was very uh white again. Uh mm. Definitely, it's, uh... there's no diversity. There's certainly no diversity on Medusa, and, and as we've said before, no children. Mm, and that's, I mean, that's part of that they haven't really fought out Medusa society much at all. Because I was quite interested in that element of it. How are children raised on this uh, planet? The, the ugly car you mentioned. It is. It is a hideous, <laughs> a hideous brown fawn coloured uh, I, I meant to try and look up what. Yeah, I'm not sure what make it was I think 
but um, yeah, it, it looks like it was designed by Playmobil or something. <laughs> but I guess that's the aesthetic of the era. It, it's not the only. It's, it's, this the is other the... cars they feature are no nicer to look at. I mean, and you got these the paint jobs on them are like you've got stomach trouble brown, catsick green. Uh, it's just, and, and they're so proud of that car that that estate car they put it in the credits <laughs> and the every opening, week and the opening titles every week. Mm-hmm. So no, yeah, not the car. Uh, it's uh, the professor's is. car, isn't it? Yeah. Who's the only character we haven't really talked about? But I can't really say I've got much to say about him, Professor Evans. No, yeah, not really. There's not a lot to know. Professor Evans never really registers, really. I mean. Although he's played by a, a veteran character actor, Derek Farr, yeah, he's not really given any interesting quirks. So he, he just kind of looks worried all the time. He's <laughs> just there looking concerned in in all scenes. So uh, although he has the rare distinction in that he's one of the few characters who does actually travel between Earth and Medusa. Yeah. And, you mentioned the ugly car. Even by the standards of other 70s shows, there's something particularly ugly about England in this. This is the really naff 70s in, uh, on show. We've talked about the theme music, you know, with the light, or, light orchestra you know, uh, uh, theme. It's, you've got the blocky poster fonts for the credits. It's the sets mm. of this drowning sea of beige and cream. Uh, mm. You've got random acrylic props everywhere. You've got furnishings clad with pleather. You've got mm. elaborate polyester costumes on everyone. You've got all that bulky 1970s tech of switches and relays and monstrous computer banks with their own disco light show. Oh, and <laughs> the, you know, the sort of invisible line between drama and high camp. <laughs> it, so it, it is, really is a. It's it's worth watching an episode just for that experience. Really, one thing uh, uh, was mentioned in the Gareth Thomas interview. You mentioned that the housing estate from the perfect couple was completely empty. In fact, they were still building it at the time, and the builders were not happy with the crew being there. They wanted <laughs> them to get off, and that's what that I think that explains why the housing estate had such a strange, sterile look. And that was something we didn't mm. mention. There were scenes where all the Men and Fulvia would leave the house at the exact same time, all the houses in the street at the exact same time, and drive off in their cars at the exact same time, while the housewives mm. waved goodbye, and it was really weird. It like, is weird. I kind of took that as a as just a kind of a stylistic touch, that to kind of show the conformity, yeah. uh, rather than it was like rather than a sort of sinister Stepford wife sort of. Uh, element well i think it was i was rather than saying it's sinister i think i mean it was more again it's this kind of trying to critique the conformity thing by making mm. it look ridiculous or was it just an mm. idea of the director at On the time day. who just thought well, that'd be quite fun to do uh, it, it's hard to tell yeah thing with star mains is it does demonstrate why other sci-fis either stay away from the gender plot or when they do the gender plot, it just doesn't work. It's just there is there isn't much mileage in it at the end of the day. I mean, let's face it, that Blake Seven episode is pants. <laughs> um, mm. Oh yeah, the, I was in fact I was going to phrase that as a question: Has there ever been a good sci-fi episode? You know, I was uh, about uh, 
a women because uh, uh, I can't think of one. I'm racking my brains. I mean, the best I can come up with is probably Happiness Patrol. At least I can believe in that society. I do believe in that and society. I mean, maybe, maybe, yeah, I think mean, probably because the whole the theme for the feminine part is sort of incidental. Really, yes, that's not that's what the story is about. Yeah, yeah. There's only that comment between the guards who say something about, "Oh, the women get all the best gear." Yeah, women get mm. all the best guns. Mm. <laughs> but so, women... yeah, that probably is the way of doing it. In a way, is doing it, but without drawing attention mm. to it. Oh, this is the Asari in Mass Well, I was that single race. That was but... something else I was going to mention. If we wanted to move into games, uh, the Asari, that yeah, that that's that's quite a well re- realized matriarchal society. But that kind of works only because the Asari are all female anyway. <laughs> they mm. don't have any concept of gender politics. Mm, that that's another way of doing it. In fact, those those books I was talking about earlier, the um, in uh, in Venus plus X, it's a, a future where everyone is a hermaphrodite. But basically, they're sort of male hermaphrodites. So everyone is essentially male, but they've got wombs as well. In that one, so that's that's one approach, which, mm. which is where you just yeah you make it a single sex society essentially. Like you wonder. Wonder Woman uh, on Themyscira, which funnily was originally called Paradise Island, <laughs> when um, <laughs> they were allowed to uh, set foot on. All very interesting. Would you like to uh, go into some some final thoughts on uh, Star Maidens? Uh, I think it's, it's a very contradictory and muddled show because there isn't, like we said before, there's no single hand at the till. T- till a, there's no overarching I guess person uh, I cast over the show so it's like everyone's doing their own thing and it, with different agendas different goals different ways of thinking about things and approaching it so it all becomes a bit of a strange mishmash model uh, it's it's certainly not as bad as its reputation no. um, suggests uh, nowhere near as bad in fact it's it's actually quite watchable for the most mm. part even if it's not what you call good i mean it ranges from farcical to being actually almost competent sci-fi um but it's uh, it it's difficult to to categorize and i think that is its biggest problem they didn't seem to quite know why they were making it or who they were making it for and it, yeah, it it has languished simply because it's not because it's not memorable. But it, it, it doesn't sit on any particular shelf. No, and in Sharon Sharp's article, she talks about it. Say it's been overlooked very much by academics, but also fandom. And she says, in general, especially in academia, you've got this snobbery towards television sci-fi, where there's a tendency to favour literature sci-fi or film sci-fi. And even more so, there's a snobbery towards British products. But in this case, even more so, because it's ITV, so BBC is seen as serious sci-fi, whereas ITV is dismissed as popular, trivial and commercial. So it's like a triple blur. It's on television, it's British, and it's ITV. (laughs) And all that's stacking up against it. Yeah, I think there is a true, and in fact, in that article which you sent me to read, I think she also makes uh, there's possibly a bit of sexism going on there. In that it's called Star Maidens, you know, if it was called Star Lords. Again, you get it in things like talking about nostalgic shows, 
animation, lots of people talking about Transformers and Turtles, but less so stuff aimed at girls. Trouble is, though, uh, Star Mains doesn't even seem to be aimed at girls. No, it doesn't seem to know who it's in. Mm, true. I think, I think it is a series that has unexplored possibilities that you wish they, they had. I mean... Uh, a good one is um, the influence. We never, it, it is a bit one way in that we have the humans trying to get the Medusans to come around to our way of thinking. There's no sense, it might have been interesting, for example, if if knowledge of this matriarchal society, this alien planet, had begun to affect Earth. You know, well, if well- that, it did with the feminist groups because they got very excited and invited Fulvia for a talk and they just seemed mm. to idolise Fulvia. What I thought from watching Star Mains is there's plenty of, ex- uh, of, of well, it feels like there's plenty of episodes, it's probably like two or three, uh, where you've got Rudy, Liz or Professor Evans saving the day. And so Earth yeah. people having a direct effect on Medusan society there's nothing in reverse. There's no point where no. or, or, or Fulvia or Adam and Shem step in and save Earth from a disaster of some sort or solve something that, you know, causes international acclaim, you know, uh, or, or, you know, or praise for the Medusan people. What is kind of weird, and, and it's very British, very 70s actually, is that, a lot of people's attitudes to them being extraterrestrial seems to be, oh, you're an alien. Oh, right, okay. The fact that they've got extraterrestrial visitors walking among them. Well, no, you got that guy who phones up the police, isn't it, and go- dubs him in going, hey, that alien's down the street. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's true it's, that. It, and Initially, I think early on, there's some lip service to, oh, we've got to keep this undercover. We don't want to cause panic. And then, yeah, by halfway through the series, it's being just casually announced on, on the news. You know, that there are two aliens on the loose. In fact, and it's not even the lead story, I seem to remember. It just kind of comes halfway through the news. Yeah, and it got used to the <laughs> idea of having alien visitors very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it really needed episodes where the Medusans have a direct effect on human culture. So there can be some feeling of exchange. Yeah. Rather than it being mm. there. It just feels like then there's no calling out of the attitudes of, of Earth society. Mm. But, but this is probably because Rebecca could probably explain this better than me, but. In 1970s Britain, you know, there's still quite a lot of fairly hefty sexism around, but I suspect the people writing and directing this, because they're in that culture, they probably don't see it. So they have nothing to particularly write about to, you know, attack or expose, because they're probably not, you know, they're not probably not aware of it. So when they do write about the grievances of, of these radical feminists, all they can do is come up with some grotesque caricature yeah they're not experienced they have no personal experience of casual sexism or everyday sexism like women at the time would well, not even any cat callers on the street for fulvia to zap you know which would have been mm. i would have been thought would have been perfect for that kind of light-hearted approach so we end up in the last episode with fulvia i think fulvia says to adam adam you acted like an earth man and that's how we end no, so I think it would have been better on that last episode, actually, if it had been full-viewed around the ship, juice and women, rather than Adam, because Adam is already 
you know, contaminated. We know he's already contaminated, <laughs> so he wasn't really. Mm. It would have been interesting if a, if a, a more aggressive attitude or a more Earth-like attitude had been rubbing off on one of the women. Mm. Definitely, I think that was the one thing really missing from the last episode. I wanted the women, yeah, have an active part in the conclusion yeah. of that of that story. Even though we've had our own grievances to air about this show, I'm nevertheless I'm glad I've taken the opportunity to watch it, and I want to thank both of you for watching it along with me for this uh, podcast. Yeah, this, despite how much we have moaned, it, <laughs> it, it is actually quite fun, and it's yeah. it's it's worth the journey. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I'm going to say thank you very much for your time. Thank you for inviting us on to talk about this, Gareth. It was fun. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, you're welcome. And thank you for listening. And I'll look forward to us being all together again soon with another sci-fi show. Goodbye for now. Very British Futures has been looking back at Star Maiden with guests Kevin Hiley and Dr. Rebecca Ray. Music by Chatri Ziri. Produced by Gareth Preston. If you have any comments, you can tweet them to at FutureVery on Twitter or leave a comment on my site, garethpreston.blog. We'll be back with the uninvited.